Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, this morning we're continuing to look at a text we took up uh, last Sunday, and that is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. So let's read together the Word of God, for this is the very breath of God. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we pray that by the Spirit now that you would open your word to us. Let them not merely be words, let them not merely be information, but let them be the power and the demonstration of your Spirit, and let them be food to us, convicting us, building us up, making us strong, giving us faith and hope and love, that we would be to the praise of your glory, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at uh, what I really think is the heart of this passage, which is the whole idea of confessing the faith, which is something we see the Lord Jesus brought his first disciples to do, to confess the faith, to confess the truth, centered on who he is and what he will do, and to do so in the midst of surrounding and prevailing confusion in error. We saw that that is something that was not a one-off event that Jesus did with the first disciples. It is something he calls every generation of disciples to do. And he puts us in the same kind of situation as the early disciples. He puts us in the midst of new confusion and new error so that we have to build on the faithful confession that they gave so that in our day we confess Christ and we make the truth stand out. Well, this week, though, I want to follow up by uh, going into some other issues which have tended to dominate the consideration of this passage uh, for many centuries now. I don't think that these were issues in the first century, but they have come to be issues now, and so I want to take them up. Um, And that has to do with the question of who is Peter? Is he the supreme apostle? the foundation on whom the church is built? And is his foundational role something that Peter then passed on to a succession of bishops, specifically the bishops of the Church of Rome? Now, that debate usually centers around a bunch of very complicated arguments over the Greek in Jesus' statement in verse 18, where he says, 
you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, Peter is the Greek word petros, which means a stone or a rock. But it wasn't the common word used for rock. The common word used was kepha, and that's the one you usually find in the New Testament. So petros uh, is an unusual name to call somebody in the first century. Today, we often think of, okay, Jesus was calling him Rocky. You know, so basically in English, Rocky Johnson, Peter, son of Jonah. Okay, Rocky Johnson. That's not really quite that way because Rocky's a common nickname in English and Petros was not a common nickname in Greek. So it's an unusual name to call somebody. And the ambiguity comes in here in the Greek because this last phrase that Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, Jesus uses a different form of rock than he did in the first phrase when he says, you are Peter. So in the Greek, Jesus says, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, it's been debated, it's hotly debated now, it's been debated for centuries, whether Jesus is saying that Peter is the rock on which he will build the church, or whether Jesus is just making a play on words. He's basically saying, your name is Rock, or your nickname is Rock. So let me tell you about another rock, the rock on which I will build my church. And if that's what Jesus is saying, then what is this other rock on which he will build his church? Is it Jesus himself? Is it perhaps the confession that Peter gave? What is it? Now, as I mentioned, these arguments uh, based on the Greek uh, get very, very uh, tedious. Uh, And there's uh, scholars all over the map on this, uh, uh, scholars of every type uh, taking different views today and always uh, have since this has become a burning issue. Here's the bottom line for me. I tend to think that Jesus is referring to Peter, but I do not think that that supports the idea of Peter as the foundation of the church, nor the idea of him having a special status that is being passed on uh, to whoever happens to be the bishop of the Church of Rome. The reason why I tend to think uh, Jesus is referring to Peter here, uh, but I'm not going to get dogmatic about it because, again, you get into the Greeks very complicated and there's scholars all over the place. It's just that I think that that is the most natural reading of Jesus' words, and it seems to be the most natural way the disciples would have taken his words. You see, unlike English, Greek is a language where nouns and definite articles are either masculine, feminine, or neuter. And in in English, we don't have those genders uh, in our nouns and definite articles. Everything is just neuter, and then you find out how it's being used, whether it's been applied to somebody who may be masculine or feminine. But Greek, like Spanish, like German, like a lot of languages, everything is either masculine, feminine, or neuter. And so when Jesus says to Peter, you are rock, he would, of course, use the masculine form, which is what Petros is. That's the masculine form. But he would not necessarily use the masculine form when he says, on this rock I will build my church. Having identified Peter as the rock, having said, this is what I'm calling you, it would be very confusing, it seems to me, if Jesus in the same breath is suddenly referring to some other rock without indicating exactly what that rock is. It seems the disciples would naturally take him to mean Peter 
absent some clear indication from Jesus that he meant something else. Now, you can go around and around over these uh, intricate arguments over the Greek, but here's the, the most important thing. I think the way really forward in this issue is to look at the big picture, to not just drill so deep in trying to uh, figure out the Greek, which is unusual Greek here anyway, but to look at the big picture of what Jesus and the apostles teach in the New Testament. And when we do so, the picture we get that all, is that all of the apostles were foundational to the church, but that Jesus was the chief cornerstone upon which the whole foundation was built. And finally, that Peter did play a special foundational role in the earliest stages of the church. So let's take a look-see and let's look at this. Well, the first thing we should notice about our text here when we look at the big picture is that this passage is not primarily about who Peter is. It is primarily about who Jesus is is. It opens with Jesus saying, who do men say that I am? And then following up with a question, but who do you say that I am? And it is only as Peter correctly answers that question, who, am, who is Jesus? He answers it on behalf of the disciples. It's only when Peter correctly answers that, that Jesus speaks to what the church is and who Peter is. Whoever Peter is, and whatever the church is, they are only what they should be as they confess the truth about who Jesus is in the midst of confusion and error of the world. So, that's what this passage is about. And we see that Peter's role as the rock is connected to him confessing Christ and leading Jesus' disciples in that regard. So having established that, the next question we should ask in terms of the big picture is, what did Peter himself teach on this topic? What did Peter himself teach on this topic? Well, to find out, we go to his first epistle. And this is an epistle which he's writing to Jewish believers who were scattered all over throughout the Roman Empire. And he says this, he says, Coming to Jesus as to a living stone... Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So here, here's Peter's picture. Here's what he taught to Christians then and now. This picture he paints is of the church as a new living temple where God dwells. A temple made of people, with each people, with each believer being, as it were, a living stone. And in painting this picture, Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 28 where it refers to Christ as the chief cornerstone, and also says that the cornerstone is laid for a sure foundation. Peter doesn't quote that particular phrase from Isaiah 28, but it's right there in the same context. 
It refers to Christ as the chief cornerstone and as a sure foundation. So that's what Peter taught. What about Paul? What did he teach? Well, very similar to Peter, uh, he refers to Christ as the foundation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he tells the Corinthians, who were in very much need of being re-centered on the foundation, he said, look, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But elsewhere, Paul refers to the apostles and the prophets as part of that foundation. And so you start getting the same kind of picture that Peter was talking about. Apostles are foundational, just like the prophets were, but Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And together, that makes the foundation for the church. In Ephesians 2, Paul says this. He says, You Gentile believers are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, that's the same sort of picture we get in the book of Revelation, which, of course, is a vision given to the apostle John. There, John is shown a vision of the bride of the Lamb, which, of course, is the church of Jesus Christ which is also identified as being the heavenly Jerusalem. And John describes this vision of a city that he sees as having 12 foundations, 12 foundations consisting of the 12 apostles. So neither Peter, nor Paul, nor John, nor the other apostles taught that Peter alone was the rock or foundation on which the church was built. They taught that all of the apostles were foundational to the church, but only as they were connected to Christ, the chief cornerstone. And of course, the perfect example of that would be Judas, who abandoned his confession of Christ. He betrayed Christ and thus was no longer part of the foundation of the church. Okay, so... It's important in all of this that we understand what a cornerstone is because there's a lot of modern construction that doesn't use stone at all, let alone a cornerstone. But in the ancient world, a lot of buildings were made out of stone. And this is true even if you go to Europe. We spent three years in Germany. What we found there is because space is so limited of course, back in those days when we were there, uh, East Germany and West Germany had not been reunited. So West Germany was about the size of Oregon. So you had, in a country about the size of Oregon, 62 million people. All right? That's back in the 1980s. It's more now, I'm sure. And so, and Europe had been settled for many, many, many centuries. We once went to a place in Salzburg. was a restaurant. Um, that had been an open establishment since the 900s. Okay, I'm not saying the ownership was the same, <laughs> but it had been a continuing open establishment since the 900s, uh, over a thousand years. So we think something's old here in the United States. If it's 50 years old, it's old. It's like, um, I think my wife is beginning to think our house is old. It was built in 1996. Whereas to me, because we built it, it's brand new. Every time something goes wrong, I'm thinking, it's brand stinking new. 
what's the matter with it? I'm having to fix the sink. What's the matter with this place? I think she th thinks it's old. So, anyway, I'll keep you posted on how that develops. Um, the thing is, what you learn over there is that in America has always been developing, building new stuff. So we build it really quick. We build things out of sticks and we put them up. In Europe, they think that is crazy. It's, you don't have a whole bunch of new land to develop. I mean, where you're developing, there's going to be probably been something there. There's going to be something there for a long time. They build to last. And they still build out of stone. They build out of stone. They build out of concrete because they want it to be there hundreds of years from now. And that's the way the ancient world, too, particularly in the Roman Empire, they built out of stone. So when you're going to build a building such as a temple, the first thing you did was to lay the chief cornerstone. You laid it exactly where it needed to be, exactly level, exactly square, and everything else went off of that stone. It determined how the walls were going to be, uh, location, and everything else went off of that stone. Uh, back when I was in uh, college, it was one summer, I couldn't really find a, a job during the summer, and so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to do something. So I went out to the local Votech college and I took bricklaying for the summer. Of course, I by no means became a really good uh, bricklayer, but I did learn enough to be able to build a big walkway and a big planter for my parents in, in the backyard and so forth, whereupon I almost killed my back. And that was when I was 19 and, and a hard body. Um, so anyway, but what you do when you lay brick is you lay a corner. You lay the corner and you make sure that it is perfectly square to where you've got to be. Okay, the next thing you do is lay a second corner that is, that's built off of the first one that's perfectly square with it. And then you start filling in in between. You just don't plop down a brick and then just start going. You've got to lay those corners. So this is what the apostles are alluding to. And it's what the Old Testament prophecies were talking about. They were already talking about in terms of a temple and the Messiah as the chief cornerstone. Okay. And so Jesus would point, I mean, Peter would point to Jesus in this way because what's going to happen in our text immediately after the part that we're considering today is that Jesus is going to tell them that him being the Messiah means going to the cross and being raised from the dead. And Peter is going to begin to rebuke him for that and to say, not so, not so, this shall not happen, Lord. And so Jesus will turn right around and rebuke Peter, calling him Satan, no less, for not having the interests of God at heart when he stands athwart the idea of the cross. So Peter goes from being a rock to being a stumbling block in a couple of short minutes. And we have to remember, because we think, well, you know, that's Peter, he does that. One of the things we have to remember about Peter is that he's usually speaking for all or most all of the disciples. A lot of the things that Peter says and does is stuff that the other disciples are thinking or would do, but don't have the guts to do it. And so uh, we, we, we talk about uh, Peter denying Jesus. I mean, he's the one who denied Jesus, you know. Well, he's the only one, together with John, who had the guts to follow Jesus uh, into the precincts of the high priest. The rest were too afraid. So here again, we can look at Peter and go, Ah, oh, Peter, 
He's saying what everybody's thinking. When he gives the confession, he's saying what the rest of the disciples believe too. And when he's standing athwart the idea of the cross, that's exactly the response of all the disciples. That's what they're thinking too. But the point is, is that Peter goes in a couple of short minutes from being the rock to being the stumbling block, from being Petros to being Satan. So the message is clear. If Peter wants to be a rock, part of the foundation of the church, he must stay connected to and take his every cue from Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Now what this means in context is that Peter has to publicly confess Christ, consistent with the revelation of God, and he must submit his own will and ideas and agendas to God's will and not expect God to conform his will to Peter's idea of how everything ought to work out. Now, having said all of those things, what we find is that Peter did play a special foundational role, a unique foundational role in the earliest days of the church. And I think that is what Jesus is signaling when he says that he's going to give Peter's the keys of the kingdom. And whatever he binds or looses on earth will already have been bound or loosed in heaven. Now you may notice that the way I said that just now was a little different from the way it actually reads in in the New King James when we read it. That's the way the Greek literally reads. It is future perfect passive. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. I think if you look at the New American Standard, you'll see it translated that way. So Jesus here is not saying what we typically think. It is not a promise of divine backing for whatever Peter decides. That's not what it's saying. It is rather a promise of divine guidance that whatever God has bound or loosed in heaven, Peter will be divinely led to do the same on earth in the earliest days of the church. Now, all of these terms, keys, binding, loosing, all of these refer to stewardship. And the idea is that of a steward opening the treasury of God's kingdom to people, or else closing it off to the unworthy. And that is exactly the role, the seminal role that we see Peter playing in the earliest days of the church as recorded in Acts chapter 2 through 11. Here's how we see it. Peter is present or involved every time the treasury of the kingdom is opened to a new group of people. Peter is present He's either God's agency or he is there to verify every time the treasury of the kingdom is open to a new group of people. And there's three primary groups of people that Jesus identified in his prophecy to the disciples just before his ascension that after they receive power and the Holy Ghost has come upon them, they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria 
and unto the uttermost parts of the church. Jews, Samaritans, who were kind of mongrelized, kind of half-Jews, and Gentiles. Those are the three groups of people uh, Jesus points out. Every single time the treasury of the kingdom is open to a new group, Peter is either God's agent to do so, or he is there to verify what has happened. Peter preaches the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. Now, all the apostles are there. Other disciples are there. They are speaking the glories of God and the good news of God in different languages, native languages, to all those who have gathered there in Jerusalem. But it is, preach, it is Peter who then stands forth to preach the first Christian sermon on the first uh, day of Pentecost which is, of course, the founding of the Christian church. And so he is God's tool to open the storehouse of God's kingdom blessing to the Jews. And that was answered that very day by 3,000 coming to faith in Christ. Later on, it is Peter who is sent to verify that God has opened the treasury of the kingdom to the Samaritans. It is Philip who goes down there and begins to preach, and the Samaritans are responding to the gospel. They're placing their faith in Christ. And when the apostles in Jerusalem hear that Samaria has received the word of God, this is in chapter 8, they send down Peter and John to them. And when they come down, they pray that these new disciples may receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet the Spirit had, received, had fallen on none of them. They lay their hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why is it this way? These are believers. They are disciples. I think the reason why the Spirit doesn't come until Peter and John are there is so that they can bear testimony to the fact that God has done this. God is behind this. God has loosed this. God has opened this treasury of the kingdom to the Samaritans. Prior to that time, you did not have that witness, and now Peter is there to give that witness. Okay. In that very same incident uh, or scenario, you have Peter threatening to close off the treasury of the kingdom to the magician Simon, who offers money to Peter in return for the power to give the Holy Spirit. It is Peter, you know, John's there too, but it is Peter who speaks up and says, your money perish with you. Because you have thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part, here's, here's binding, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if the, if the thoughts of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. There is a threat to bind, to close off, to shut the door of the treasury of the kingdom to this person, and God uses Peter to do this. This is because God has already done this. God's not saying, hey, Peter's the man, and whatever he says. No. It's, this is what God is doing, and God is divinely uh, leading Peter to speak these words. It is Peter who first preaches the gospel to the Gentiles, and is God's means of opening the treasury of the kingdom to them. This is recorded in Acts chapter 10. God gives Peter a vision. And he tells him to go with these three Gentiles who are seeking him. 
And he says, go without fear. You know, this was completely against the traditions of the elders for him to go in to, to them and to eat with them, fellowship with them, and so forth. But God says, you go with them because I'm behind this. and Do not be afraid. So uh, Peter goes. He speaks the gospel to Cornelius, or centurion no less, and his whole household. And we are told that while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And then Peter is again, now here you are loosening. Peter says, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? And then Peter commands them to be baptized. Then when they go back to Jerusalem, it is Peter who stands before all the rest of the leaders and says, this is what God has done. So each, with each of these, you see the initiative is with God. It's not with Peter and then God putting holy water on whatever Peter did. It is God acting, but it is in these earliest days of the church, it is God using Peter either as the tool, the steward to open the treasury, or else as the steward who witnesses the fact and verifies the fact that God has opened the treasury. Yet we see that this doesn't continue as the church goes forward. Peter's special seminal role was in the earliest days of the church. By time we get to the Council of Jerusalem, now a number of years have gone by, and this is recorded in Acts 15. The issues that were involved in God using Peter to open the treasury of the kingdom to the Gentiles has now become, it has been revisited, it has come back up as a major issue in the church because there are a lot of Jewish believers and Jewish leaders in the church who are saying, for Gentiles to become Christians, they have to become Jews. They have to come under uh, the various rituals and, uh, of the law of Moses and under the traditions of the elders. And so they have a church council to decide this issue. And so when we look at that church council, we see that Peter is involved and Peter speaks, but he is not playing the same seminal role that he was earlier in the earliest days of the church. We see that this matter is taken up jointly by the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church. Peter speaks, he recounts how God sent him to preach to the Gentiles, how God poured out the Holy Spirit upon them, thus making no distinction between the Jews, Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. But the preeminent voice that ends up carrying the day in that church council was that of James, Jesus' half-brother, who was not even an apostle. He was not one of the twelve. He was an elder, and he became the leading figure in the Jerusalem church. Not Peter, James. So we see that the, Peter kind of recedes from this unique role. He's playing the role still of an apostle. He's bearing testimony. He's preaching. He's going out. But this special, seminal, foundational role we see is limited to the very earliest days of the church. Well... What then does this mean for us? We've spent all of our time trying to understand this and understand what is going on. But we can't leave it there. We have to ask, okay, what difference does that mean for us? How should we be different because of this? And to answer that question, I want to come back to what Peter himself taught. 
Where does Peter himself point us? He doesn't point us to himself. He doesn't focus on who he is. He points us and draws our attention to two who issues. The first is, who is Jesus? And Peter answers that by saying, he is the chief cornerstone. And the second question Peter asks us is, who are you? Who are you, Christian? And Peter answers that by saying, we are the living stones who make up God's house. We are the living stone who make up God's temple. We are the place where the living God dwells on the face of the earth. What does Peter then tell us about what it means to be a living stone? And I want to very briefly give you seven things that he identifies of what it means to be a living stone. The first thing it means is come. Come. Come specifically to Jesus as to a living stone. Jesus is the living stone. Jesus is the living man. He is the resurrected man. He is the man who has not gone into death and then back out like Lazarus. He is the man who has gone into death and bursted out the other side of the grave in a new and glorified life that no man has known before. Jesus is the living stone. And we are to come to him, come to Jesus. You cannot be a living stone if you do not come to the living stone. Every living stone in God's temple is connected directly to Jesus, the living stone, Jesus, the chief cornerstone. You know, it's a, this is a different kind of building. You know, the fact that we are on 100 courses up, we're on the fifth floor way up there. Here's Jesus, the chief cornerstone, way down here, and we're 100 courses up somewhere and way over there to the right. You know, that would mean we don't have any direct connection. This is a, this is a building that God inhabits, and so it has different properties. Every single living stone is directly connected to Christ, the cornerstone to Christ, the living stone. If not, we're not a stone. We're not a living stone otherwise. And so come to him. You say, well, I did. I came to Christ. You know, this is how old I was, or I was very little. I came up in a Christian family and I came to Christ. Not past tense, present tense, come. Coming to Christ is not something you do once. It is something you do all the time. It's something you do every day. Come to Christ. You cannot be a living stone if you aren't coming to Christ every day, each day, in your whole orientation. So come is the first thing that a living stone does. The second thing a living stone does is love. Peter says, 1 Peter, it's the same context here where he's talking about God's temple and Christ the cornerstone and us as living stone. He says this, Love one another fervently with a pure heart. You cannot be connected to the chief cornerstone without being connected to other living stones. You can't be in this building. You can't be part of this temple by only being connected to the chief cornerstone. You must also be connected with other living stones. And you cannot love 
the chief cornerstone and not love the other living stones. That's what we often think. I just love Jesus so much. It's these Christians. It's these other people who drive me crazy. It's all their problem. It's all their issues. You know, and it says right here in the Word of God, you know, it says right here, and what, what is your problem? Here's the verse. What's your problem? Here it is. Why do you have so many issues? Well, see, the Bible tells us we're deceiving ourselves when we think that way. In fact, John completely turns it around. He says, you can't know if you love Jesus unless you ask the question of whether you love other Christians. And specifically, you know, I, you know that's, a, that's another talent I have of loving all the Christians of the world in the abstract. All those Christians over there in the Middle East and the Christians over there in Europe and South America and even other states and cities and even other churches in, in, this, in this valley. I love them. It's y'all. That's where the living stones I'm actually connected with. And I know it's the same for you. It's the living stones we're actually connected with who it turns out, you know, they aren't perfectly shaped. That's the problem with them. They're not perfectly shaped. They got all these rough edges and stuff that sticks out on them. I see that very well with others. Don't tend to see it so well with myself. And so John says, how do you know if you love God? Okay, that's the issue. So here's the question. How do we know we love God? And he goes over here. He points us in a completely different direction. He says, if you love the brethren. That's how you answer this question. Don't keep looking over here. You want to know if you love God? Do you love the brethren? That's how you know. Okay, so now that John's got us focused over here, we go, well, how do we know we love the brethren? He goes, don't keep looking over there. He takes us right back around the other way. He says, this is how you know you love the brethren, if you love God and keep his commandments. See, we always want to look at the one thing and get so immersed in it and go, this is, I just know that I love God so much because I love God so much. John says, that's not how you know. I just know I love Christians so much and the church so much, you know. I just know that I do. John says, that's not how you know. You've got to look elsewhere. And so that's how we know we love. We cannot love the chief cornerstone without loving and being connected to the living stones that are part of this temple. The third thing that being a living stone means is grow, grow. God's living temple is supposed to grow. That's what it's supposed to do. It is supposed to be added to and it is supposed to grow. And there are two ways that God's temple grows. Stones are added, and that's the way that the the Bible speaks of it. It's the way the, the Acts talks about it. People were added unto the church. When, when people are converted and come to faith in Christ, that stone's being added to God's temple. The Bible doesn't speak of that directly as church growth. Now, that's what we call church growth. That's not actually what the Bible calls church growth. That's called adding to, adding new stones to God's building. The other way that God's temple grows is that the existing stones grow. The existing stones grow. They get bigger. They get stronger. They get tighter together with one another. They cement together stronger. And they become a bigger and stronger temple. And Peter points out the main ways that we as living stones 
already part of God's house are to grow. He says you've got to have two things. You've got to eat and you've got to have an appetite. Because if you don't have an appetite, you're not going to eat. All right? and, he, and he says that's all part of desiring the word. Desiring the word. He says desire the word like newborn babes. He doesn't say act like babies. Goo goo gaga. He doesn't say that. He says be like babies always in one way. Desiring the pure milk of the word, okay? That's what makes us grow because it's food. It's food. It's not information. It's food. And he says you're to desire it because if you don't have an appetite, you're not going to eat. So cultivate the appetite for God's word that causes growth. The second thing Peter says is get rid of things that kill appetite. Because if it kills appetite, it kills eating. And if it kills eating, it kills growth. So it says, get, rid of, get all the things out of your life that kill your appetite. Right? You know there's different things that can kill your appetite. If you have little kids, you especially know that. There's certain things you can't let them eat. There's certain things you can't let them eat at certain times, or they're not going to be hungry for the stuff they need to eat. So Peter points out the things that kill our appetite for God's word. And here's the stuff he says. Malice. Malice means ill will. And you notice he's talking about stuff in the heart, not stuff in the stomach. Malice means ill will. Ill will leads to the next one, deceit. That doesn't mean outright not lying necessarily. It just means uh, oftentimes having ulterior motives. Saying one thing when you're thinking another. Saying one thing because you're being manipulative. That's all deceitful. Hypocrisy, again. You come across one way, you act one way, you say certain things because you're looking for an effect. You're not being genuine. Envy. Envy is resentment towards somebody else because God did something for them or you think God did something for them that he didn't do for you. That's envy. And then he says, finally, evil speaking, which is where all this stuff goes. Okay. And he says all. It's interesting that he says. He says, get rid of all all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy, and all evil speaking. So these things inside us, they kill appetite. They kill our appetite. And so we're not going to tend to eat. You can't eat this stuff. You can't let it be in your heart, or you're not going to have any appetite for the food that you need. And evil speaking is like muriatic acid. Now, if you've ever done any bricklaying or block laying or been around concrete laying, that's, that's what they clean up with because it will dissolve the uh, mortar that they use to stick bricks or blocks or stones together. You know, it'll just eat it up. And so when you get, you always have some of that that's smeared on some of the bricks and so forth. And so they'll take a big bucket of it and they'll take a broom and they actually brush it all over the brick because it eats all that excess up and it cleans it up. Well, evil speaking is like muriatic acid, and it eats away at the uh, cement that sticks us together as God's people. The next thing that Peter says that living stones do is praise. Praise. He says the reason why God has brought you together as living stones to make a temple to him is to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he specifies a little bit more about what that means. 
He says that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaiming the praises of God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the whole central focus. Everything we do, how we relate to one another, how we relate to Christ, how we relate to unbelievers, the testimony that we bear, the growth that we have, adding to God's church, all of that is a function, really, of really what worship is, of praising and thanking God for who He is and what He has done through Christ. Again, so much of what we're called to do is unsustainable in the long term, apart from hearts that are full of gratitude and thanks to God. That's where praise comes from. If you don't have gratitude toward God, praise is just words. Because praise can be done in the impersonal. It can be done in the third person, which makes it impersonal. You can praise somebody who's dead. And sometimes at funerals, you'll hear somebody who actually hated the deceased stand up and hold forth and say all kinds of nice things about them. Because you can praise in the third person. You can praise in the imperson, impersonal. But you can never think in the third person. You can only think person to person. Thanks is always personal, which is why thanks is to be the heart of our praise. Okay? That's what makes praise genuine. That's what makes it spiritual and glorifying to God. And that's what is to be the root of all witnessing and testifying to Christ a thankfulness to Christ that results in praise to God for what He has done, which results in testifying. And that is the next thing that living stones do. Testify. That's number five. Testify. Peter says, already be ready to give a, a reasoned defense, basically, a reasoned an account to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, notice what his, his command presupposes. His command presupposes that people are going to be asking you to explain the hope that's in you. If people aren't asking that from time to time, there's a problem. We don't have the thanks. We don't have the hunger. We don't have the praise. We don't have the other things that living stones do. Because if we do, we're going to have people asking us to explain the hope that is in us. And, he, and Peter says, be ready. This is how God adds to the church. He adds. The sixth thing that living stones do is reject. Now that one sounds kind of negative. Everything so far has been positive. But living stones do reject certain things. Peter says the sojourners and pilgrims reject or abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. And in context, what Peter is talking about there, of course, well, there's all kinds of lusts, and, but he's not really talking about the way we normally think, which would be like sexual lust and so forth. What he's really saying in context is reject the world system. Reject its values. Reject its goals. Reject its motivations. And see yourself with regarding the world system and its goals, its motivation, its values, its whole way of life. See yourself in regard to that as a sojourner and pilgrim. He's not saying 
to do what many in the church have often thought, which is to be a sojourner, a pilgrim on the earth. Like Jesus has a problem with terra firma. Look, this is what the kingdom's all about, folks. Here. Not heaven. It's not from here to there. It's from there to here. And so it's not that. It's, it's the world. When John talks about don't love the world, he's not saying don't love the earth. He's not saying that. He's saying don't love this system, this, uh, this prevailing, unbelieving system of values and goals and motivations. Reject that. Okay? So Peter says to reject the same thing. Reject that. Don't, uh, there was a, Ronald Reagan was a president who was known for a lot of uh, humorous, uh, humorous quips. And one time, actually, he was out of office. Uh, Bill Clinton was running. And um, one of the humorous things that <laughs> Clinton said in the campaign back then was that uh, this issue came up about uh, marijuana and who had smoked marijuana in their youth and so forth. And so Clinton said, uh, I did smoke it, but I did not inhale. It's like, liar or stupid? Liar or stupid? One of the, I don't know, maybe both, I don't know. Anyway, but uh, Reagan uh, said, hey, when you, hear, when you have all this smoke billowing out from them over there with Clinton and all this stuff, follow the example of their leader, don't inhale. And so that's really what Peter is saying. You know, we live in this world, and it's billowing out a bunch of smoke in the whole way that it values things, and that they don't inhale. Don't inhale. Don't bring it in. Because those things are corrosive to the soul. They're corrosive to the soul. Okay. And finally, a living stone lives. Live. Peter says, conduct yourself with honor among unbelievers. Live in such a way. He says, now they're going to speak evil against you. In fact, they're already speaking evil against you. That was happening in the first century. We see it happening today. Most societies that are not founded on the gospel, that are not founded on God's word, have to, there's one thing they all have to have. A scapegoat. They have to have a sacrificial scapegoat on which to blame the ills of society. And you can see in our day that increasingly the scapegoat people of American culture, the Christians. We are the scapegoat people. Now, one of the things we have to do is learn to take a compliment wherever it is offered. And it's not fun to be the scapegoat people, but it is a compliment. It is a compliment because we are Christ's people. We can see that happening. Peter says, look, you make sure that you live in such a way that even the unbelievers, the closer they look, the better you look. The closer they look, the better you look. So all these smears and stuff they want to throw against you, you make sure that that stuff only has plausibility when people don't know you from a great distance. And the more and more that they get to know you, the more and the more they see that your life is not consistent with these allegations and these charges that are being made. You make sure that when all is said and done, the only charge against you that can stick is the charge that you're a Christian. The charge of your faith in Christ. 
And that means you have to be willing to suffer for Christ. You have to be willing to suffer for Christ. So these things, this is where Peter points us, and this is where we want to be focused. Living stones, come, love, grow, praise, testify, reject, and live. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.